a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. Not all customers are created equal. The best subscription businesses understand the power of customer lifetime value, and they optimize around understanding who their best subscribers are and then deepening the relationship with those best subscribers over time. Neil Hoyne is an expert at this. As the chief measurement strategist at Google, as well as a senior fellow at the Wharton School, Neil helps people use data to win their customers' hearts. He's written a new book, Converted, on this very topic, which I read on the beach while on vacation. It's a book about data that's entertaining and engaging enough to read on holiday, if you can believe it. We recently spoke about how to measure the full value of each relationship engage in an ongoing conversation with the best subscribers, and perhaps most importantly, how to find and win new subscribers, just like the ones you find most valuable. Neil, welcome to the show. Robbie, thank you so much for having me. So I want to talk about your excellent new book, Converted. But first, I wanted to start by asking you what it means to be the chief measurement strategist at Google. The easiest way to understand it is it's less looking inside at our own data and more looking externally to customers that are using data and saying we work with really 16,000 customers who would be considered our large advertisers. How do they take the same sets of data, sometimes competing for the same customers, and make different decisions? And out of that segment, when you look across companies, across verticals, across different countries, what are the patterns that emerge in terms of best in class and worst in class? And then the ultimate question we try to answer is, how do we scale and repeat those for any other business? Okay, so these are advertising on Google, and you're trying to help them not just to use Google products, but help them to be more thoughtful about how they connect with those customers. Exactly. It'd be nice if they spend more money with Google, but that's a disingenuous (laughs) goal when it comes to data, because people are always wondering if you have your hand on the scale. In the end, we just hope that they find growth using data. And if our products are built correctly, then they should align to help accelerate that growth. But they're not necessarily part of the pitch. It's really, if we find growth through email and we don't have an email product, we will still pursue that if it helps the company. Yeah. So CEOs, CMOs that we talk to, very few of them say we don't have enough data, (laughs) right? (laughs) They usually say we have a lot of data, but we're not using it, or we don't know if we have the right data, or we don't know how to best harness this data, or it's overwhelming for us. And what do you do with those kinds of comments that you might hear from them? You hear data is the new oil with the idea that it's a commodity that you can collect and eventually somebody finds the data in it. And all engineers and analysts cringe. I had one CMO and I said, what are you doing with all that data? And she was actually puzzled when she looked at me. She's like, well, we're going to hire data scientists to unlock (laughs) the value of the data. But most companies lack kind of that middle point between the data and the actual money, which is what's a strategy that you can use to actually grow the business? Dashboards and reports, they help to consolidate all the data, but they don't tell a good story about what you're supposed to do next with it. 
how do you get that story? Where does the story come from and who's responsible for finding it? Well, I'd say it's actually two groups or two functions. I'd say one is there needs to be some type of strategy, the business going forward that the data can reinforce or the data can guide. That's a lot of where our work sits is to say, here's a data set about how to look at a customer or how to look at a particular moment in that business. What opportunities come to actually jump in front of competitors and grow share? On the other hand, you also need people inside the business that can translate that idea, that strategy to something that every function can understand and participate in. You may work with a frontline salesperson where as soon as you mention a confidence interval, they check out and say, this conversation's not for me, which means they're not going to participate in the strategy, no matter how great. They're not going to understand the data, no matter how wonderful and brilliant it may be. They take a step back from the table and they say, I'm going to go back to doing my thing. And that particular group doesn't transform. And so you need that first layer, which is to say, what's a strategy? What can we actually do with this data and direct an organization? That second layer to say, how do we get everybody on board to be able to take their knowledge and their understanding of their business and apply that strategy to their day-to-day work? So it seems like bringing this into the world of subscriptions, you have all this data around how you acquire customers, how long they stay, when they leave, what they do while they're with you to some extent. How do you make that into a good story? How do you explain to your colleagues across the organization what you're trying to do with the data or even harness that data to make it useful to your colleagues? Yeah, I'd say there's a number of different techniques. I don't think I've figured out the perfect model. I wish I did. I'd probably make lots of money. I probably have a much better book. I love the book that I have, (laughs) but if you can solve the translation question, that is a monumental opportunity. Let me tell you what I've seen work. The very first thing that we see companies struggle with is to get buy-in from other teams about how they can transform or use that data for their business. So with most transformations, when you see something in data, the most opportunistic ones will have winners and losers. You're moving resources across functions, which means that some team, their priorities will look better, other team, their priorities will look worse. And then all of a sudden, those people where they're looking at losing headcount or losing budgets, they now become detractors for whatever you found in that data. It's not uncommon. I've been on projects where you see great insights and you say, hey, our subscribers are doing this, which means we really shouldn't be doing that anymore. And then the team that's at the losing side of that argument says, wait a minute, we're going to run our own analysis. We're going to bring our own data. And then you end up with a poor decision maker who says, wait a minute, I have one team here that says more money here, another team that says less money here. And the average always comes out to be, well, I guess it's inconclusive. Let's keep studying. And so the first thing is just to find a way to bring everybody on board. And we can talk about the specifics of that, but that I would say is the first strategy. The second part of it is to make sure that you avoid common mistakes. So one thing that I see oftentimes is that we lose connection to the customers at the end. We talk in a language that quite honest is unnatural. So oddly enough, a lot of value was unlocked on our team where we stopped going to, of all people, executive coaches for presentations. It's not that they weren't talented and they weren't great at what they did, but they spoke our language. So when we mentioned something like, oh, we should use remarketing or let's take a look at churn, everybody knew exactly what everybody else in the room was talking about. But all those people were already on board with the strategy. It was the people outside we needed. So now we actually work, the the gentleman I work with, this guy Mark out of Chicago, he actually does Shakespeare as a career, Hmm. which is strange. And he can make Hamlet sound interesting. He can also make my presentation sound a lot more interesting But when we're talking to him and we mention like, oh, well, the statistical significance of this number or we should build this campaign, he's like, stop. He's like, you've lost me because I have no idea what you're talking about at this point. 
because this isn't the language I use. And so sometimes it's simply challenging teams to go beyond the status quo to say, it's not what you see in your data, but how do other teams see it? How do other teams describe that relationship? Really, really interesting. I mean, two important points that you're bringing up. One of them is that whatever story you're trying to tell, there are going to be winners and losers inside the organization. So culturally, you really need to pay attention to that. And the other one is you need to make sure they understand and care in the first place, um, which is really important for data people to connect with their colleagues across the organization. That's exactly it. Yeah. It's such a challenging thing. There's kind of the left brain side where you're just trying to get to the right answer or be able to explain what your goals are. And then the other piece is communicating it in a way that people both understand and don't feel threatened by. Exactly. And I'll add on another piece to it as well. The biggest challenge for some companies when they try to build this fluency around data is people are reluctant to raise their hands and admit that they have no idea what you're saying. Especially with basic statistics and math, they're like, I think I should know this as a VP of the organization, but I don't want to tell my team I have no idea what's going on. So they sit silently, they nod. Occasionally they jump in. I had a story, there was a, I was working with a CMO a couple months ago and we were presenting an analysis and I brought in a data scientist, a relatively new one, who started presenting a whole bunch of things in technical terms. And the CMO raises his hand and he's just sitting there quietly and he just looks, he's like, did you use Bayesian in this analysis? And I sat there and I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, I don't necessarily understand what he's saying. And like the data scientist is like, well, that sounds like a statistical term, but I don't know what that means. And then he just cracks a smile. He's like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but that's how I sound smart in meetings. He's like, I just whip it out. I said, does anyone understand Bayesian? And he's like, it sounds like it's related to statistics. And now everyone thinks I'm smarter than everyone in the room because they don't know how to answer my question. That's terrible. But that's his approach. And I'm still friends with him. And he's like, he's like, I don't know what you all do. So it's either you can explain it to me or I just need to trust you. And I'd really prefer to understand what it is you're doing so that way I can participate. A key thing that I hope people take from our conversation so far is if you are in a meeting and you don't understand something, ask. And most of the time, not only don't you look dumb, but everybody else in the room is saying, thank goodness somebody asked. And also saying that person's pretty smart because they caught me because I was getting off into a realm that wasn't relevant for the conversation. So if there's one thing that you take away from today's conversation, it is ask the questions when you don't understand, raise your hand. You're doing yourself a service. You're doing everybody else a service and you're keeping the speaker honest. I love that. Well said, Robbie. (laughs) Thanks. So you wrote this book, this excellent book, Converted, which I recently read on vacation. And I have to say, it's an amazing thing to have a business book that you can actually enjoy on the beach but it was fun and lighthearted and easy to follow. And honestly, just full of practical tips and tricks and almost no data speak. So congratulations on writing a book that was so easy to read and yet so full of valuable insights. What prompted you to write it and to write it in this very approachable style as opposed to, I guess, writing it for your peers? I would say that the style was actually front and center. And for a lot of the sections in the book, I labored. In some cases, I think the introduction took almost six weeks on its own. And we're talking printed pages, maybe eight pages. And the reason is that you simply accept the reality. People don't read data books. And so the very first thing was to say, I need to write a data book that's accessible. Now, the subtitle of the book, The Data-Driven Way to Win Customers' Hearts, that was actually a long debate with the publisher to say, should we include data even in the title? Do people see that and say, ah, here it is, another data book, not for me and write it off. 
But we also wanted to add to say, behind this conversational tone, behind this, this engaging approach to measurement and analytics, there is a lot of math behind it, but there's also a time and place for it. So everything you're reading about in the book is backed by research, is backed by data. It's just not what we need to talk about right now. We need to talk about the strategies, the thing that any manager can embrace to say, this is me. This helps me lead my organization. This helps me lead my team. And I don't need to get bogged down in the weeds. But I emerge on the other side with the confidence to say, now I know how to lead these teams. Now I know how to participate in the conversation. Now I know how to demand more than just simple dashboards. And that should hopefully be better for everyone. Yeah, I think it is. Now, the first section is about questions, asking questions. And I love that you started with that. That's not even really like most people wouldn't even think of that as data. That's just asking good questions. And you give the example of getting married. And can you explain what you mean by thinking about the questions you ask a prospect in the same way that you think about getting married? So I look at all of these engagements with customers. I put them in the lens of human relationships. I do that because that's approachable. Everybody has their own stories and their own interactions, something that they can provide and that they can ground their relationships with. If you start with data, you're starting to say, well, let's talk about unique visitors and time on site and bounce rates. And all of a sudden now you're stuck in this language of data. So I say, look, what we really have here going on with our customers is the equivalent of a courtship. They want us to trust them. How do we build that trust? And when you start looking at things in that lens, other behaviors make sense. So for instance, I was always told when I was dating that you shouldn't call a woman right away. Like you need to wait a couple days because if you call her like right after you meet, then it's like, eh, give her space. It's overwhelming. Right. And then you say, well, wait a minute. Why do digital marketers, as soon as I leave your website, you start sending ads my way? Are you that desperate for my attention? And guess what the data says? The data says people are less likely to subscribe, less likely to be your customer if you approach them in that way. Instead, if you give them space, you wait 48, 72 hours, then they actually are more likely to re-engage with you. And so these stories, these connection points just allow us to ground how we understand customers and to realize there's a very human relationship on the other end. We just don't see those people. We just translate them through numbers and spreadsheets. Yeah. What I loved in that analogy is just extending it a little bit is First of all, a lot of marketers talk about, you know, you don't walk into a bar, find somebody that seems attractive to you and say, hi, I like you. Why don't we get married? Right? <laughs> that, that does well, not shouldn't. generally- You shouldn't do does it. Not go for, but also, you don't go out with them the first time and say, would you get married? And they say no. And then you say, let's go out again. And then at the second date, you say, hey, do you want to get married now? Do you want to get married now? You get to know them. You ask them other questions, you engage them in other ways. Maybe you go to a movie, maybe you meet the parents, maybe you talk about your life goals, but there's a lot of different ways of asking questions, getting to know the other person. Yes. Let's even unpack that a little bit. What are we talking about? The first thing we're talking about is beyond anything else, having the confidence that you can make relationships work. I think where a lot of companies go astray is they lack that confidence. And we don't use these terms in marketing, we use accountability. It's to say, well, if I spend time meeting somebody, are they going to marry me or not? I need to know that right away. And so I'm going to ask. And to say, no, give it a little bit of space. And organizations have loved that immediate gratification. Well, now I know somebody clicked on my ad and they bought, but that's only harming you. So have a little confidence that these techniques will work. That's number one. Number two is to participate in the conversation. Now, here's what happens when we talk about asking questions. A lot of companies immediately go towards, ah, so you're saying I need to collect more data from the customers. Yes, 
but in a different way. What's the traditional model? The traditional model is you don't ask the person you're sitting across from. You're not asking the customer for more information. You're going to third parties. It's kind of like you're sitting across, you're having a great conversation with the customer. And instead of asking them what direction things are going or what they're looking for, you say, I'm just going to pay my friend to tell me. Do they really like me? Do you think they're going to buy? Who else are they talking to? That's also not natural. But the alternative is simply where I want to encourage companies to say, you have to be more flexible and engaging with customers to ask them where they are in the process, what you can do to improve and personalize that interaction, and really be, again, confident that you'll get that information back. And I want you to think next time you're interacting yourselves on with different websites and, and you're buying from companies, how few questions they ask. They'll ask, well, here's what I need to sign up your subscription. Here's what I need to get you through the checkout funnel. I'm scared to ask anything else because you may leave me. But what the data actually shows, here's the interesting and most underleveraged part of a website, is that after somebody subscribes, after they purchase from you, that's the highest their trust is going to be at that moment. They gave you money. They gave you a phone number. It's like, things are going great. It's yours to lose. And the thank you page is what? No, here's your confirmation. Here you go. On your way. It's like, no, that's the time you're actually supposed to respond. What should you have on your thank you page? What would be an example of something that you should have? I signed up, I subscribed, or I bought my first product. What happens then? So generally, I'm a big fan about flexible questions, which is empowering your organization for anybody to ask the questions and try to capture data that can encourage and build new hypotheses for your business not tying everything up in a single annual survey, but to say, no, let's have a thing where we're going to try different questions. Some may work really well, some may not. But the first thing is the thank you page is going to become our playground to ask. Now, what do I like to ask? I like to ask about share of wallet. Southwest Airlines does a fantastic example of this where every year or so I'll get a survey to say, how much are you spending with other airlines? Which is great because if you're looking at the value of a subscriber, you want to know how much are they spending in category. If they're already giving you all their money, then that relationship is in a good place. If they're not only giving you a portion of the time and it's going to someone else, now I want to be curious as to why. What can I do better to service your needs? Or why are you not having your needs met by another party? What can I do to be better? Another question I like to ask actually comes as part of surveys. And this is one that's mentioned in the book, which I just love because it becomes so intuitive and powerful, which is on surveys, people generally ask, where can we improve? What can we do better? Now, what did some professors think? They said, well, human nature is when you ask somebody, what can I do better? They start thinking about all the ways you let them down. Like, <laughs> go, if I go out to my wife, and be like, well, what can I do to be better? She's going to be like, well, you should have picked up the kids or we should have cooked a better dinner, whatever it is. Now, she doesn't complain at all. But when we ask people negative, they think about the negative. So they said, what if we turn that around? What if we ask people about the positives? What did we do right? What do you like about our offering? What do you like about our company? As it turns out, when they asked people that question, they were able to measure effects for more than a year and a half later that those customers ended up being happier. Those customers ended up having higher lifetime values. Those customers ended up subscribing to more products and services. And that's from a single question that carries almost no risk in something that all businesses do, but just haven't asked. And where do you ask that? Is that a once a year question? Is that a thank you page question? The effect was measured on surveys. They took standard 10 question surveys and they put that question on top. So you still had the same 10, but now you had 11. And that's how they did their tests and control groups. But in other cases, I would have no issue putting it on the thank you page because the psychological effect should be equivalent. There's nothing special just about it being in front of those other 10 questions. It's just you need to ask, what do you like? Which is a nice word to say, give me a compliment. Tell me what you love about <laughs> me in, in a more balanced way. I love that. So those are 
two great tips. Use the thank you page. Ask about Share of Wallet. This is actually three things. Use the thank you page. Ask about Share of Wallet and ask what we're doing well instead of focusing them on what we're doing wrong. <laughs> Why am I a bad match for you? Tell me. Come yeah. on. I know we're on the path of self-improvement, but it seems like an odd question to ask somebody individually. You talked a lot in the beginning of the book about how to ask good questions. You talked about asking good questions as if you're talking to a real person, thinking of this as a relationship where you want to learn about them over time, where it's not just a once a year thing and it's not a one undone, which very much aligns with how I think about subscriptions. How do you do that at scale? How do you do that when you're trying to reach a million people and you're trying to make each one feel like you're carefully and thoughtfully developing a personal relationship with them? A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a very successful restaurateur in New York City. Until I thought about it, he was challenging the notion of what Silicon Valley calls scale. And he said, in Silicon Valley, the idea of scale is that you're going to build a product that can deliver services to millions of people. That's the scale they look for. And he challenged, he said, the real definition of scale is being able to deliver the same type of service, the same type of experience, the same type of relationship to one person and then delivering it to two, then 10, then a million. And it challenges us to say, if we had one person come to our website and that was our entire day and we can have that relationship with them, how do we then embrace the tools and techniques that can offer that same service, that same level of conversation to future visitors? And so the definition really grounds us to say, we shouldn't be making compromises based on technology, but let's talk practical tools. What are companies actually doing? The first thing is the language of the company has to change where they're talking about people, things that are valuable and understanding the relationships instead of calling people unique visitors or, hey, we hmm. received. So the language matters. The language matters because that's how we condition and how we treat it. When we talk about things like clicks and conversions, what are we doing? We're almost commoditizing it. We can get more people anytime we go out into the market and we increase our budgets. Now, there's only so many people out there and you're turning away great people. So we use that very human language. The second part, is to look for those types of tools that allow this, I would almost say this scale to happen in a more natural way. This is where machine learning fits in, artificial intelligence. What's it really supposed to do? It's supposed to take all the patterns, all the conversations you've had in the past and tell you what to focus on. What are the moments that truly matter in the relationship? When you're looking at your website behavior, you may see someone bounce in between 30 different pages Machine learning is going to have the best avenue to say, which of those moments do we think something changed? What should you pay attention to? And when you see a lot of research that comes out, they're using those techniques. And I'll give you an example. A lot of companies focus on that, adding something to a shopping cart or starting the checkout process to say, now they're getting serious. That's the next step in the flow, right? It's to say, we had the date. Now they're giving me their phone number. Now we're having a second date. Things are progressing, which may be true. But at the same time, they turn away other softer signals they should pay attention to. So at least in the retail setting, people that remove things from their shopping cart, that's a sign of curation. We may think, well, no, 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 they're saying no, they're pushing back. No, they're being more selective with the products they want to buy. It's nothing to walk away from a website. It's another thing to come back. That is such an interesting point. And this kind of brings one of the things that I encourage companies to do when they're thinking about their product offering for a subscription is to start by doing it in a very manual way. And when you think about the example you just gave, if I'm in a store and I'm walking around, I got my shopping cart full, 
And I start to take one or two things. If I'm done with the store and I don't like it and I'm like, I'm not finding anything I want, I'll just abandon the shopping cart and walk out. You just walk away. Somebody else will put it back on the shelves. But if I'm saying, actually, I'm going to take the red blouse out and I'm going to keep the green one, that means that I'm taking it more seriously. And so if you think about that logic of what it's actually like to be in a store and say, now I'm shopping online, does it mean the same thing when I take something out of my shopping cart? you start to have those aha moments. And it totally speaks to what you've been talking about in terms of treating the user like a person (laughs) and not thinking about clicks, but thinking about actions and really trying to understand what's going on in their mind on their journey to accomplish something. Because really what any purchase decision is, is I have a goal. I'm trying to accomplish something. I want to look beautiful. So I'm going to buy some new clothes or I want to get fit. So I'm going to join a fitness program. And how are you going to help me get there? That's exactly it. Yeah. And I'll add on to it too. I really hope for all the listeners out there that the takeaway isn't so in our customer funnel, we should have remove things from shopping cart. Don't make this a linear process. The larger takeaway is to really encourage and establish that curiosity. What you're doing is you're setting the stage. This is who you are as a company. This is what you're offering to consumers. You can guide them. You can have your expectations, but consumers are going to do things that surprise you. And if your path is to say, no, I want to force them to think how I think they should act, you must go through this page next. That's what I want people to get away from. Where the real value comes in is saying, we're going to set our stage here. We're going to let our customers interact the way they want to interact. And what we're going to do is be curious about why and what we can do better. And we're going to open our minds to say, people are going to use products in ways we never anticipated. They're going to use our website in ways that we didn't plan. And we're not going to try to corral them and say, no, do what we want. We're instead going to understand why and how we have better relationships by adapting to what our customers are saying they need. And that goes right back to your original point around asking a lot of questions and being curious. Yes. If somebody's taking stuff out of their shopping cart, maybe ask them. I don't know if this is a good idea or a bad idea. You can tell me. But if you're at that thank you page, so I had a green blouse and a red blouse. I dumped the red blouse. I checked out. Thanks for shopping with us, Robbie. Why'd you dump the green blouse? Yeah. What what happened? And was it A, because you were getting ready to leave us and somehow we won you back? Or was it B, because you were really optimizing, which one am I going to wear tonight? Yeah. And even asking, and when you look at the opportunities, if we draw a list, we didn't cover all of them in the book, but there's some retail sites that say, look, what we're going to do is we're going to mix up our categories for return visitors, give them a new way of experiencing us. Not here's men's, women's, kids, but as you brought up, by occasion. And what are we going to get? More curiosity from the consumer, which is what they find, the increased engagement with products, but also signal to say, what are you really looking for? I'm looking for work clothes. Great. We didn't get that just when you went into women's and then separates. Now we have that understanding. Companies that optimize menus, Starbucks does a great job dropping the currency sign from their menus to make people less anchored by price. That's something we can try on our website. Let's not remind people of price. And even the way people interact with products by zooming in and looking at the texture and the size and the color of products, that generally is an indicator to say, are they going to be happy with their purchase? Or are they going to call customer support right away and incur more costs for your business? Which brings me to, when you talk about that, are they going to be happy with their purchase? Well, if they're not happy with their purchase, the chance of them coming back goes way down and the lifetime value declines. And I know that you're a big believer in optimizing for lifetime value. Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit about why that is? 
what that means and why it's important. I know in the world of subscriptions, it's something we talk about, but it's true in almost any business, I think. I look at it in a very simple and again, human lens. I meet a lot of people in my life. Some people are very close to me, my wife, my family, close business associates that provide so much value to my life that I simply couldn't do without them. And of course, they change my life and how I respond. And I certainly want to find and build relationships with people just like them. And then on the other hand, there's people that you'll meet only once or twice in your life. It may be a flight attendant on a flight, the Uber driver that took you to the airport. You'll never see them again. And they're great people. And they had that moment. But I'll say, first of all, imagine how different your life is if you don't understand and identify those relationships. And you don't spend a little bit more time, if you haven't seen a close friend or family member in a while, if you don't reach out to them. Or even worse, if you think about the other side, what if you treat everybody equally? Like, what if you go out of a, I have to make an important career decision. All right, do I ask my family or do I ask the Uber driver? And then I average the two answers together. Right, right. And the reason why I say this is because practically speaking, when we look at how companies build out their subscription sites, what do they do? They're going to run a test. They're going to run an A-B test. They're going to say, do people like the red button or the blue button? Do they like this creative or that creative? And then they just treat everybody equally. They say, hey, the family member is worth as much as the Uber driver. Even though the family member is going to come back and be with us forever, we're never going to see the Uber driver again. We'll average the results together. And so when people start looking at their business from a lifetime value lens, it just allows them to prioritize opinions. It allows them to prioritize data and questions a little bit more. We want to listen to these people and build for them. And we don't want to turn to these people away, but we're not going to put as much emphasis on their opinions, even if we ask. Listening to the customer doesn't necessarily mean listening to every customer equally. It means understanding who your best customers are mm -hmm. and optimizing for more of them, for them to be happier. And this is very much in the realm of a past guest that we had on the show, Pete Fader, mm -hmm. friend of yours and mine, who talks a lot about this concept of customer centricity. You talk about this in your book. You actually have a whole section dedicated to what I think is a very practical way of incorporating customer lifetime value into your work by segmenting your audience. Can you talk a little bit about how to do that and where to get started if it's something that you've never thought about before as an organization? I mean, the first practical step is certainly to calculate it. And one of the things we talk about in the book are best in class practices, because, and I'll be honest, if you search how to calculate lifetime value on Google, you'll end up with three to four pages of poor results. And so the first thing was to clear the air to say, not only here's how you calculate it, but again, to give everyone confidence that they can calculate it without it being a month long effort, that it is relatively straightforward and proven these models. The second thing is once you understand who your great customers are and your poor customers are, to understand why, what makes them different? Was it where they came from, the time of day, a promotion, a coupon code that you had, the products or services they were interested in early on, who introduced you, or maybe the agent they spoke to over the phone that won them over? That's the next question. That helps you to build that profile to say, behaviorally, what makes people different? And then afterwards, you really have three choices. You certainly can go out and acquire more customers. You can develop the customers that you have a little bit further, or you can retain the high value customers that you have today. And that's everything past that point is just walking people through to say, here's really what options are available to you to acquire more of these people. Here's what we can do to develop them. Here's what we could do to retain them all with a little bit of segments to say, here's how far you can push these rules before things start to break. So for instance, you want to acquire better customers, but Robbie and you and I were talking about this earlier. You don't necessarily want to say, we're going to just go after the very best customers, no matter how attractive. 
Instead, no, you just simply want to meet better people today than you did yesterday. And so those rules are put forward just so people know, hey, can I save a little bit of time by making sure I learn from the best and worst practices in the industry? When I think about the companies that I work with, I felt like this was one of the most important sections of the book, this idea that it's not that hard to segment your customers by value. I think you break it into four quadrants and you can use just a few data points as a starting point and then use some hypotheses to start to figure out what's different in quadrant one than quadrant four. Mm-hmm. And then just start to tinker on the margins so that you're spending a little more in the channels that attracted more of the quadrant one people using those messages a little more and a little bit less in quadrant four. So one of the things that I see that I hear companies talk about is they say, well, it seems very risky to just segment and then go after quadrant one. And that's not what you're saying. I mean, you're very explicit about that. I'm clear about it because wow, is that dramatic? Like imagine you've built your business on whatever strategy you've had for years. And then all of a sudden the CMO comes and says, no, everybody stop. We're going to go after these people. And you're like, wait a minute. We've never reached out to these people. We don't know how to message them. We haven't learned this conversation with them. We just happen to gather them. How hard could this be? And instead you say, hey, let's take everything you have and let's not try to reinvent your business. Let's just try to nudge you in a better direction so that you make more money. And then that will work and we can do it again. And we find teams generally are more accepting of that change than something overly dramatic to say, no more doing this, only doing that. That's just far too binary and it just doesn't lead to a lot of success. So at the same time as you're saying, not all customers are created equally. And if one customer is worth $40 and one is worth $200, don't say the average customer is worth in between. No, don't do that. Understand the difference between the $200 customer and the $40 customer, Mm -hmm. but then be gentle and curious and experimental as you continue to optimize around those higher value customers. That's exactly it. You don't need to abandon the lower value customers. Say, get away from my business. And it's just, maybe you don't want to spend as much marketing investment on them. And during that time, you want to prove to yourself to say, look, if we believe these customers aren't going to come back, let's take a couple hundred of them. Let's stop marketing to one group. Let's continue marketing to the other. And let's look at the results. And the reason we do it is not because I lack confidence these techniques will work, but sometimes you need to prove it to your organization that they do. And so that way you can make iterative changes. You can learn from it. How do these people respond? And then you can move forward with the next test. But that way you're keeping yourself lightweight and nimble and you're learning as you go. Yeah. And the systems you need to do this aren't that sophisticated. I mean, you can use a pretty straightforward spreadsheet. You don't need to have tons of data on your customers. Isn't that strange? Like a lot of people think, oh, so I need big data systems. I need cloud. I'm like, no, most of the work I do is in Excel. (laughs) (laughs) It's just easy to work with. But that's also why these techniques rise to the top, right? Do you really want to go out and have to buy a new enterprise system takes, what, 18 months to install? Wow, that would be disappointing. Thank you for reading the book. For the next 18 months, you're going to be doing what? The exact thing we started talking about not to do, collecting and organizing more data. It's like, no, let's just use Excel and let's get into work. Right. And I think this is also a really important takeaway. What Neil just said is so important that start getting curious about your customers right now. Ask them more questions. Try to understand who the best customers are using the data you have available today and use your Excel spreadsheet. Don't worry about saying, we're not going to do this for two years while we evaluate and vet and build our new big systems and then hire, as you said earlier, Neil, the data scientist to give us the answer. (laughs) Data scientists, go do your thing. No, you'll never hire any good data scientists if they find out that's the job. Yeah. So the last thing I want to talk about with regard to the book is culture. 
And I love that you dedicated a chunk of the book to just talking about how to build relationships. Because what I see with a lot of companies that move, let's say, from transactional models to subscription models, which almost by default are more focused on customer lifetime value, long-term relationships, all the things that you talk about, people within the company, first, they don't really understand what the subscription people are talking about. And then when they understand it, they're threatened by it. Those are sort of the two parts, right? Because as you said, there's winners and losers in terms of who gets the budget, who gets the headcount, who gets to be the hero at the exec team meeting. What have you learned in your work at Google and in your work more broadly, working with hundreds of, if not thousands of companies about the cultural piece of moving to this kind of model? I've learned candidly that even if you have the right answer, and it's guaranteed certainty, data rarely is, but even if you have the guaranteed right answer, 50-50 chance that companies will accept it. And that's just what it is. I've run experiments that show, here's a company that can make five or 10 times more revenue, proven in a best-in-class methodology, and still companies like, eh, we think our data is a little bit different, and they just ignore it. This is the reality. We tend to trust ourselves and our intuition more than we trust data. We don't admit it. We think, oh, data wins. Data rarely wins. It's oftentimes the people in the room that will make that decision. So what that last chapter is about is to say, if you really want these ideas to take hold, it's more than just learning the principles. You need to learn who's on the other side of the table. And so there's just, we touch on the best practices. What are the core areas? One is just this idea, this theme we spoke about around incremental improvement for your business, as opposed to just chasing a perfect answer. We talk about the need for experimentation to collect data and build confidence that what you're doing and the changes you're making, the models that you've constructed are in fact leading to better profitability. We talk about how you get other people in the organization on your side. How do you get that agreement to make sure that when you're running these tests and implementing these models, that people aren't going to be threatened in that transformation and they have the opportunity to grow? And then the fourth and perhaps most important area is how do you bring other people in your organization along with you? How do you make them evangelists of your work and what you know, as opposed to simply coming along and saying, well, what does Neil say is the right answer? And they do that. Because then what, if you don't do that, you undo that entire storytelling aspect we started with, which is they're not able to participate. They're not able to use their experience to help you ask better questions, to formulate better insights, to run better tests. And so really being able to educate them on what you see in the direction you think you should go so that they can participate and add value themselves. I think that's the secret sauce is there's lots of smart people out there who can tell you the right answer. And the hard part is bringing together a team to support implementing that knowledge. We're only Good. human after all, right? <laughs> so I want to just close out with a speed round. Are you up for that? Absolutely. Let's go. Okay. First subscription you ever had. Oh boy. It would have had to have been a newspaper at that point. I'd probably say the New York Times, I believe. If not that, I'd say maybe Nintendo Power when I was a kid. They had that magazine. <laughs> that was a big thing when I was like five. I think I got the inaugural issue, but that wasn't my subscription. That was my parents. Okay. Fair enough. The subscription you get the most enjoyment out of today. I'd have to say Netflix, and it's not any really good movies. It's just my kids. I have a two and five-year-old. They love Netflix, and just nothing makes them happier than watching cartoons with me. Best advice for a listener spending significant budget with Google on advertising? Best advice? Best advice, I mean, the obvious answer is trust anything your account team say. Uh, <laughs> no, I'd say the best advice I have with anybody spending time with Google, if you are working directly with Google, you should be. But it's to just let the people on the other side know what success looks like for you. So I think oftentimes, especially with just advertising platforms, they send over too much data and here's more data and more case studies, but they don't necessarily know the burden of proof in the organization to say, 
how do we build that trust? What do you need to see? So that way the information and guidance they're providing is speaking the language of your business. Yeah, that's super helpful. What's your favorite question to ask a new customer in general? Favorite question to ask is probably that one that I already brought up, which is what do you like about us? Because I just gain a lot of insight from that question. I'll also tell you though, conversely, I don't know if you're going this way. The worst question I ask people is how did you hear about us? Because as you put in dummy answers, people will select channels that you're not even marketing on. So sometimes it can be difficult to get honest answers in those categories. And final question, favorite underused metric? We've spoken so much about lifetime value. I have to throw it in the mix just because people don't look at it often enough. They'll spend more time on new customer rates, which I think are garbage. Bounce rates, which I don't know what you learn. Time on site. And it's like, well, wait, wait, why aren't you looking at lifetime value customers? Like, no, we're too busy looking at CPA or ROI. And it says, no, look really at what your customer's worth, even if you don't use it. Even if you're not going to bid on it, just know it's there. Because if you have a conversation where everyone's saying, well, look at the CPA of our campaigns. Look how much it costs us for each new subscriber. And then somebody puts up a column next to it and say, hey, I know we're not bidding on it, but how come these subscribers are going to stay longer than those subscribers? I love those debates within organizations. There's no pressure because you didn't tell anybody to use it, but I want people to start asking why. Start asking why. Fantastic advice. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Neil, as always. Thanks so much for spending time with me and congratulations once again on a terrific new book. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and for the wonderful questions as well. That was Neil Hoyne, Chief Measurement Strategist at Google, as well as a senior fellow at the Wharton School. Neil's new book is Converted, The Data-Driven Way to Win Customers' Hearts. For more about Neil and his book, go to convertedbook.com. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Neil, go to robbiekelmanbaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Neil and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. We read all the reviews because we want your feedback. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.